1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 29. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We'll cover all of this narrative this morning, but I'll call your attention in particular to the last verse we just read, verse 29. This is kind of the conclusion in the narration when it comes to the prophets of Baal. We read in that verse, And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. I don't think I ever realized until taking up this study just how prevalent the war was between Israel and Baal worship, not only on this occasion in 1 Kings 18 between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal, but over the entire span of Israel's history. You find this battle between Israel and Baal. Back in 
Judges chapter 2. This is right at the beginning now of Judges, where the author of that book is making reference to uh, generations that had passed in the days of Moses and Joshua, and now they've entered into a new generation. And in Judges 2 and verse 10, it says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, that is Joshua's generation. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. So Baal, Balaam, all reference to the same thing, variations of the same false deity. We come forward, okay, near the end of the time of the judges, in 1 Samuel, and you could argue that Samuel was the last of the judges. And we read in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and served the Lord only. Balaam and Ashtaroth, basically referencing two deities that are thought to be closely connected to each other. But here you have another instance now of false worship dominating the lives of the people and having to put away this false worship in order to turn back to the Lord. We know, of course, that under King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, Baal worship prevailed in the northern tribes of Israel. Back in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31, we read these words, And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he, that is Ahab, took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. You see Baal worship again coming to gain the preeminence in the days of Ahab. And Baal worship would not end with King Ahab. You might think that following this event that we've come to now, this contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and we'll get to that portion where Elijah does call down the fire and the people are on their faces with a clear demonstration of who God really is, you think that would settle the matter forever. But it doesn't. Baal worship would not end with Ahab, not even after Elijah called down fire from heaven. It would also be found among the southern tribes of Judah. Everything that we've been dealing with up to this point in the narration occurs in the northern tribes. But Baal worship would 
afflict the southern tribes as well. That would include the city of Jerusalem. That would include the city where the temple was built. So we read in 2 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. You get the picture then, don't you, that Hezekiah, and he's listed as one of the best kings in Israel, or in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And this man went so far as to purge false worship out of Judah. And then his son Manasseh comes on the scene and he reverses everything that his father Hezekiah had done. And he rears up the altars for Baal yet again. And so we have the accounts of the altars of Baal being destroyed by Gideon in the times of the judges, destroyed by Jehoiada, the priest, to help preserve the Davidic line by sheltering the boy Joash after Queen Athaliah sought to extinguish the Davidic line. I might add here that had she succeeded, she would have put an end to the plan of salvation because the Messiah was to come through the Davidic line. But, you know the story, the life of Joash was preserved. And even as late as King Josiah, who you may recall was the king in Judah during the time when the word of God was rediscovered while the temple was being repaired, even in his days we have the account of him purging the vessels out of the temple of the Lord that had been used for Baal worship. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that Baal worship was a constant blight on both the northern and the southern tribes of Israel, so much so that I don't think it would be improper to look at Baal worship as a type of all false religion in the world, even up to this present hour. I don't remember who it was that said that in spite of the many religions that can be found in the world today, you can pretty much reduce them all into two categories, two religions. There's the religion of the Lord, and there's the false religions of the world. We may marvel at the fact that Baal worship could never have found its way into the nation of Israel. But it has always been the devil's design to counterfeit religion and worship and lure the Lord's people into it. So we read earlier today the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 12. But what I do that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory they may be found even as we, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Oh, the devil has been at work throughout the history of civilization trying to counterfeit the true religion of Christ and Christianity. No marvel then if his emissaries uh, appear to be personable and charming, having a luring power about them, I suppose, by their personalities and supposed sincerity that leads people astray. It becomes very important then for the Christian to be able to recognize false religion and false worship when we see it. And here these 450 prophets of Baal can be helpful to us in the practice of discerning false religion and phony worship. So that's what I'd like to focus on this morning, discerning false religion. As Christians, we must discern false religion. What can we learn then about these Baal leaders that can help us discern false religion? What can we learn especially about the deceptiveness of false religion that will help us keep to the straight and narrow way. Well, let's consider first of all that false religion may be impressive by its numbers. False religion may be impressive by its numbers. If the truth of Elijah's challenge as to who is God would have been determined in terms of numbers, then the answer to the question would have been an easy one. Baal must be God. I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, Elijah says in verse 22, and we'll have more to consider about Elijah's I only mentality when we get to chapter 19. In a sense, he was the only prophet of the Lord, that had the courage to go against the much larger supermajority on this occasion. We don't read of anybody who stepped forward and stood with him. We don't even find Obadiah mentioned in this setting. You remember how he was the first one that Elijah met with when he was told to show himself to Ahab and Obadiah. Uh, pleads with Elijah, do you, you not know what I have done, how I have sheltered uh, the prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and fed them, took care of them, protected them? Well, that's well and good, but where is Obadiah now? Doesn't really say. Would he have been standing with Ahab on that occasion by virtue of his position in Ahab's court? Or perhaps he wasn't even at the scene at all. The point I'm making is that there was a sense in which Elijah had a valid claim when he said, I only of the Lord's prophets are left. 
He was the only one that stood up on that occasion. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah goes on to say in verse 22, Keep in mind that there were also 400 other prophets in addition to those 450 that are called prophets of the grove that are mentioned in verse 19 as those that ate at Jezebel's table. These were the prophets of Asherah, who was thought to be the consort or the wife of Baal, a goddess, Asherah, married to the false god, Baal. I pointed out in our last study that for whatever reason, these prophets appear to be no-shows at this contest. Perhaps they scarcely thought it worth their while to appear when it was only one lone prophet of the Lord against so many prophets of Baal. Now, if these 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah are viewed as spiritual leaders of the false religions that they represented, and the prophets of the Lord are reduced to Elijah only, then the numbers of the followers of Baal would have been many times more and beyond that 850 when you add them all up. Baal worship, after all, had become the favored religion of the state. You wanted the favor of the king, you better follow the king's religion. And it would be understandable, though inexcusable, as to how many would have gone that route. Surely so many prophets with so many following them must mean that Baal worship was the true worship of God. And the worship of Jehovah, well, that was old-fashioned. That has become extinct. You ever heard that before in our day? That Christianity is an old-fashioned relic of the past and the only people that adhere to it are those that are ignorant and superstitious. It's amazing how often popular acclaim is used as a determiner of the truth. In another setting, in another period of time, we find a man in the book of Acts by the name of Gamaliel who would stand before the council of the Jews and argue against popularity as being the factor for determining what's true. Ironically, in that time, it was at a time when multitudes were leaving the established Jewish religion in order to follow after Christ, and Christianity was ascending as that which was popular. And it was Gamaliel who stood before the council and said, wait a minute, let's not assign uh, too much importance to the popularity factor in dealing with the apostles. And so we read in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded uh, to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, 
Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. You know, Gamaliel raises a very valid point with regard to both of those men, Thutis and Judas, which although he didn't realize it, Gamaliel didn't realize it, but what he was doing here actually would serve to vindicate the cause of Christ. You see what Thutis in verse 36 and Judas of Galilee in verse 37, they both had something in common. Not only that they could get men to follow them and become somewhat popular, but they also had something perhaps more basic than that in common, and that is that they were both dead. And once they died, so did their causes. Now put that in the context of the message that the apostles were proclaiming. What were they saying in the days of the early church? They were saying that Christ was crucified and died, but that he was alive. If that message isn't true, Gamaliel is indicating, then this cause will go the same way the previous ones have gone. It will die with its founder. It won't matter that it seems to be popular for a moment. It will eventually prove to be a flash in the pan, so to speak, because people aren't going to align themselves with a dead man for a leader. And so popularity should not be the guiding principle in discerning false religion, or true religion, from false religion. I would agree with Gamaliel's proposition, even when it applied to Christianity. If popularity is the guiding factor, then really think about it for a moment. We'd all do well to become Muslims. Islam, which claims to be a correction to mistaken notions about Christianity... Islam has been said by some to be the fastest growing religion in the world today. If popularity is the factor, we better get on board. Or perhaps we should all become Mormons. I've also read along the way that Mormonism is the fastest growing cult in the world today. Its conservative appearance and its emphasis on family values have given it popular appeal. Both of these religions, I should hasten to point out, follow dead men. Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. What Gamaliel thought to be ridiculous has actually become widespread in the days following him. Today is actually popular to follow religions that have been founded by dead men whose graves can still be found. 
I would suggest on the basis of the example of the early church that a more telling guideline for discerning God's work would be who you are following, not how many are following. Elijah was certainly willing to take on such a notion that truth is determined by majority rule. He had a better idea. Let the matter be determined by fire. Let's take a page out of Elijah's playbook and out of Gamaliel's playbook in the New Testament and make sure that when we exercise discernment regarding false religion, we don't gauge the matter of truth simply by popular appeal. So that's the first thing to keep in mind then when it comes to discerning false religion. Don't base your determination on what's popular or what may have impressive numbers. The Baal worshipers had the numbers, didn't they? 450 prophets versus one only prophet of the Lord. The next thing to keep in mind when it comes to discerning false religion is that false religion may appear very fervent in its devotion. Fervent in its devotion. Verse 26, And they, the prophets of Baal, took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. How many prayer meetings have you been to that go from morning to noon? Oh my, what, a, what impressive devotion here. Uh, hours on end of calling on their God. Oh Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. The word leap in this verse is an interesting word. It can actually mean to limp. I'm not sure that translation, however, really gives us the picture of their devotion. Perhaps this is an unusual instance where the NIV may give us the more uh, correct picture. It translates the statement, and they danced around the altar that they had made. I can picture that fervor by the word leaped in the King James Version. Leaping up and down, dancing all around the altar, kind of reminds me of those Western movies that you used to see with the Indians getting ready to mount their attack on whoever they're going to attack, and they're all uh, dressed in their array, and what are they doing? They're going around their totem pole or whatever. Uh, jumping up and down, making their war hoops, etc., etc. And I think that's something of a reflection of the picture of these Baal worshippers on this occasion. Very fervent, uh, intense in their devotion. Listen to how my favorite paraphrase puts it. This is from the message. It reads, They prayed all morning long. O Baal, answer us. But nothing happened, not so much as a whisper of breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar they had made. This leads then to Elijah mocking them by suggesting that their God is 
either talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. I don't know if we get the complete picture of just how strong Elijah's mocking was until we read a more literal translation of that word pursuing. The ESV reads it like this, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Oh, Elijah's mockery knew no bounds. This in turn leads to an even more fervent display of devotion on the parts of the prophets of Baal. So we read of them in verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. My, what devotion we may say of them. See how they punish themselves. See how fervent they become in their self-denial, willing to practically bleed themselves to death in order to get an answer from their false god. And so may we find those today in this gospel age that make fervency of devotion the determining factor for discerning true religion from false. Paul had to deal with the Christians at Colossae along these lines. So we read in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men? which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. You see what Paul is dealing with there? Those who practice forms of self-denial in such a way as to suggest that this gains them favor with God. Really not a lot of difference between that in the prophets of Baal that are trying to impress their deity with the way they're punishing themselves. If that kind of devotion showed us truth, then we'd have to follow the great reformer Martin Luther into his Augustinian monastery and go no further. He thought self-denial and punishment to the flesh was the way to gain God's attention and God's favor. You could say that he thought along the same lines as these prophets of Baal. But no matter how much he denied himself food or the comfort of a bed, and no matter how much he whipped himself and spent hours on end confessing his sins to his confessor father, he never did escape his sense of guilt. He carried out his punishing devotion to such extremes that his colleagues reached the point where they questioned his sanity. This man was so fervent and so intense in his self-denial and in his self-punishment. And so you can find today those advocates of false religions and cults that may appear to be very impressive in the fervency of their devotion, 
They may subject themselves to severe forms of discipline and self-denial, and yet they're no closer to God than these 450 prophets of Baal were. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. There are others, you see, that name the name of Christ, you see, who would respond to austerity by going to the other extreme of indulging the flesh and live for the world and help themselves to all the delicacies this world can offer because of their so-called Christian liberty to do so. The church at Corinth seemed to have that kind of tendency to live that way. So we find the Apostle Paul having to deal with them for their failure to exercise church discipline as well as their failure to be considerate of what effect their actions might have on others. The only point I'm seeking to make now, however, is that true religion is not distinguished from false religion in terms of austerity or indulgence. So Paul writes in Romans 4 and verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. So don't be deceived by mere numbers. I'm not going to become a Muslim or a Mormon. I don't care how many others are going down that path. They're on the broad road leading to destruction. And Christ himself foretold that there would be many on that broad road. Let's stick to the straight and narrow way of Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. One more point to be mindful of in the matter of discerning false religion, and that is simply this. False religion knows nothing of the fire. False religion knows nothing of the fire. This contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal was a contest of fire. The God that answereth by fire let him be God, Elijah says in verse 24. This is an instance where I actually prefer another translation that reads along these lines, the God that answereth by fire, he is God. I like that better than let him be God, as if to suggest he needs our permission to be God. No, the God that answereth by fire, he is God. We will, of course, have to focus more closely on that fire when we come to Elijah calling down fire from heaven. The thing to note here with regard to the prophets of Baal is that there was no fire. I should mention the irony of such an absence because Baal was worshipped as the sun god or the god of thunder and lightning. Fire was associated with this false religion, but throughout the course of that day, there was no fire. 
No matter how long they called out or how fervently they cried to their false god, and no matter how many of them there were, there was, at the end of the day, no fire. The conclusion for the prophets of Baal then is given to us in verse 29. Let me read it again. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. You get the impression, don't you, that the prophets of Baal had totally spent themselves. They had begun that morning. They had called on their God all day long. They had increased their fervency in the afternoon hours, especially after Elijah had mocked them. Now at the time of the evening offering, which would have been actually mid-afternoon, 3 p.m., I think you could say of them, they're spent. They gave it their best shot. Their devotion has run its course. Perhaps they consoled themselves in thinking and certainly hoping that with Elijah's turn now coming, his efforts would prove to be as futile as theirs. No fire. So I imagine they would have hoped. It's the mark, really, of every false religion. No fire. And by fire, I'm thinking now of the fire of real devotion, which reflects the love of God and of Christ. It's the fire of life, the fire of eternal life. Man, do you want to know whether or not a work is of God Look for the fire of life. Is there spiritual life in this house? If there is, then God is at work in this place. If there's not, then we're wasting our time. We ought to go to where we can find life. And of course, it follows that if you want to find life, then you have to find Christ. He's the source of the Christian's life. He's the aim in the Christian's life. He's the reason for the Christian's life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Christ said in John 14. For me to live is Christ, Paul said to the Philippians. Oh, there's the fire, spiritually speaking, those that live for Christ, those who can honestly say old things did pass away, all things have become new. There was a purging that took place in my life when I gained a saving interest in Christ. Things of the past, you could say they were burned in the fire. But really, they were nailed to a cross. But there's the fire, spiritually speaking. And you can't imitate spiritual life. It glows in a wonderful simplicity. It affects a person's demeanor. He may not even detect it himself. When Moses came down from the mount of God, he didn't know that his face was glowing, but everyone else could tell that he'd been in the presence of the Lord. And that's the mark of a person with the fire of devotion for God radiating through his life. 
He's been in the presence of the Lord. He loves the worship of the Lord. He doesn't have to put on a plastic smile. He doesn't have to offer an insincere handshake. He doesn't have to force himself to function in a way that's unnatural. If he's been in the Lord's presence, then the fire of life in Christ will be evident in him. And you won't be able to stop him. He must speak of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. He must sing praises to his name. He must give heed to his word. It becomes his chief delight. It becomes his highest priority. How do we discern false religion then? Well, don't be overly impressed by numbers and don't be deceived by austere and prolonged devotion. The prophets of Baal had both, but they had no fire. Oh, may God help us to discern the fire of life in Christ, a fire that burns deeply within a Christian's heart and compels him to meet his chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm reminded of the words of those Emmaus Road disciples when they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the word to us and showed us Christ? Oh, may that be the fire that burns in our hearts, and may we have the discernment to recognize it when it appears in the lives of others. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for Jesus Christ, that he is the true and living God. We thank thee that we're not following a dead historical figure who remains in a grave. We thank you that by thy grace we've come to recognize that he's alive, that he's risen, and that we're joined to him and have arisen with him. We thank thee, Lord, for the fire of devotion that's been kindled in our own hearts, We attribute this to thy grace and to thy power. For left to ourselves, we would never have come to Christ. Lord, I pray today that thou wilt light the fire in the hearts of those that are in this meeting or who are viewing it from afar. Light the fire of devotion in their hearts to Christ by convicting them of their sins and convincing them that Christ is the Savior of sinners and then by compelling them to flee to Christ for salvation. And we pray, Lord, especially in such days as these, that you'll help us to be discerning when there is so much that is popular and yet can be proven to be false. So, Lord, hear our prayers now and take our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.